down, I invite you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. We have a longer passage today, verses 26 through 40, but it is all the same story, so we are going to work through that. And as you are turning in your Bibles, there are two questions I want us to ponder this morning as we um, read this passage, as we look at this passage. Uh, Two questions. What does Luke want us to see in this passage? And then what should we learn from this? So what does Luke want us to see? Every author writes with a purpose and with an intention. They have a meaning behind what they write. No author, at least worth their grain of salt, writes to say, here, I'm just going to write this and you can interpret it however you want to. You can do whatever you want to. I have nothing I want to convey. I have no meaning. You can find the meaning on your own. Um, However, that is the approach that a lot of people take with the Bible. Um, Several years ago, I was sharing the gospel with this um, older couple, and um, we were talking about the Bible, and they went to church. And um, as I was um, pulling references from the Bible and talking to them, um, he looked at me and he said, you're what we call a fundamentalist. I said, really? He said, you believe the Bible is true? I said, yes, I do. And he said, well, we believe that the Bible is a bunch of stories, and then we have to find the truth in these stories ourselves. And so we read it, and then what, whatever truth we find in it, that's, that's what's true for us. And went, okay. <laughs> At the time, I didn't really quite know how to respond to that. We kept talking, but um, there wasn't a whole lot you can do when you say that this is the Word of God, and his response is, yeah, no, it's really not. But uh, the reality is, authors write with a purpose. And it's easier to sometimes see that purpose when we have the letters from like Paul, because sometimes they're very clear on what they're wanting to say. It can sometimes be a little more difficult to understand the purpose when we read a narrative. So this Acts is a history book. It is, this is what is going on in the church. These are things that are happening. happening. And there was a lot that was happening, but Luke has chosen to write about specific events and in a specific order. And so this morning, as we consider this text, what does Luke want us to see? So that is the first question we are going to address. And then the second question, once we've looked at that, we will talk about what we should learn from this. So keep those questions in the back of your mind as we are reading this passage this morning. And if you are able to stand, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Luke writes in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. 
and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us this passage this morning. Thank you so much for displaying your glory for us. I pray that you would fill this place with your spirit, that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might preach what you want us to hear this morning, God. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear your truth, that you may receive glory and that we might be spurred on to love you more, to serve you more, and to honor you more throughout this week. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing as we read this passage that we want to consider, what does Luke want us to see? I would argue that Luke wants us to see the glory of God on display here. So we see in here the working of the Trinity at work. So it starts off with an angel of the Lord said that went to Philip and said to him, go down to this southern road into the desert. So here we have a messenger of God. God sent an angel to talk to Philip. So the father is working. The father is active. The father is sending messengers to his people. Then later on, we see in verse 29 that the spirit speaks to Philip and says, go up to this chariot. And then what we see at the end of this passage is the promises of the son are being fulfilled. So we've got the Trinity at work in this passage. We have God's glory on display. And we're going to talk more about that. But that's the first thing that we need to see in this passage is the glory of God. The second thing is the Great Commission is being fulfilled. So Christ said, Luke records Christ as saying in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the first instance of his people receiving power is recorded at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, and the gospel spreads throughout Jerusalem. We see thousands added at one time, and then hundreds more, individuals more, but over and over again on a daily basis, God keeps adding to their number. The gospel is spreading throughout Jerusalem. We see the apostles standing firm in the power 
of the Holy Spirit, preaching to the courts, to the ruling councils over and over again. And we see the gospel spreading out as more and more people are coming to faith in Christ. Then we have Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gives his sermon to the same council that crucified Christ, and they kill him for it. And persecution hits the church. And the church scatters and spreads around, and they continue to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ throughout the surrounding areas. And then, at the start of chapter 8, Luke records Philip going up to Samaria and preaching the gospel. So, at this point, up until our passage here, almost all of Christ's promise, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And we see that happening. So we don't know how long. I tried to do some searching to see how long from the time that Christ said that until Philip goes up to Samaria. I wasn't able to find anything, at least not anything that I trusted. Um, and so we know that time has passed. So there is a set amount of time that has passed from the time that Christ said that to the time that Philip went up to Samaria. But it wasn't the same day. It wasn't the same week. There have been days and weeks and perhaps months that have passed. But Christ's promise is being fulfilled. And then here we see the promise of it being fulfilled to the ends of the earth in this passage here. The Ethiopian eunuch is from Ethiopia, not the same Ethiopia that um, we're praying for, for the Oromo people. The Ethiopia at the time of Philip was located where we call Sudan now. And that was the edge of the known world. That was the edge of the Roman Empire. And so this man, this court official, this high-ranking person, came to Jerusalem to worship God. And the gospel reached him. And he went back home. So we see the gospel spreading throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea, then to Samaria, and then now to the ends of the earth, as we see the start of that. So Luke wants us to see the Great Commission being fulfilled here. So we've got God displaying his glory and the Trinity at work. We see the Great Commission being fulfilled, and we see the glory of God and the Great Commission being fulfilled in the eunuch coming to faith in Christ because he is one from Ethiopia, from Africa, so not a whole lot of respect in other parts of the Roman Empire just simply because of the color of his skin. Also, he is a eunuch, which means he is forbidden by God to enter into the temple and he is not allowed by God to become a member of the Jewish nation. So in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 1, um, God gives a decree that no man whose testicles have been crushed or removed can enter into the assembly. And so this man, being a court official um, in um, Ethiopia, it was a common practice for men who served queens to be castrated so that um, only whoever they want um, a specific line of descent to go through and um, so the queen could be protected. Um, so we see that happening and this man is a eunuch. And so he is not allowed to become a Jew, but he is a God-fearer. He went from the area around Sudan 
all the way up to Jerusalem so that he could worship Yahweh, so that he could worship the God of the Jews. And he feared God. And on top of that, he had acquired a text of Isaiah. So this man was a God-fearer. This man wanted to worship Yahweh. This man wanted to know God more. He came up to worship, and he didn't come up to worship other gods. He didn't come up to worship Roman gods or Greek gods or gods of the other nations around him. He came to worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And so God is already at work in the gospel of tearing down walls. We see that happening with the gospel going to Samaria. And if you remember from Denton's sermon, Jews and Samaritans didn't really get along. And so the gospel went up there and we have Philip and John going up, bringing and laying hands on and the Holy Spirit coming upon Samaritans there to show a unified body of Christ and how the gospel breaks down walls, overcomes barriers. And already in this story, we see that happening with the eunuch. We see the glory of God on display and drawing an outcast and drawing somebody who is on the periphery, who would never be allowed in under Jewish law and Jewish culture. But in Christ, in Christ, there are no barriers because Christ fulfilled the law. And so in Christ, this man can come into the presence of God. And so we see God's glory on display by saving this Ethiopian eunuch. The third thing that we want to see in this passage is the obedience of Philip. So Philip's life is a testimony to the glory of a changed life in Christ Jesus. Philip is up in Samaria and he is reaping a harvest. So people are coming to faith in Christ to the point where Peter and John, powerhouse apostles, make a special journey up to Samaria to see what's going on, to lay hands on, to, to have the Holy Spirit come, to bless the start of this church. There is amazing work going on. And counter to every church planting strategy ever, God says, leave that work, Philip, and go down into the middle of nowhere into the desert. That is not any kind of good strategy by any kind of company that we see here in America. It's a terrible idea. And Philip, how does he respond? Well, in verse 26, uh, actually verse 27, and he rose and went. No questions asked. Yes, God, you told me to leave this work behind and to go into the middle of the desert. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to go because I trust you and I follow you and I will be obedient. And so Philip goes and is obedient. And then on top of that, we see the spirit. When he gets there, he comes across this court official in a chariot. And a lot of images that you see depicted of this scene show Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch standing in a little two-person chariot with a scroll unrolled. And that could be the case. It's more likely that this chariot was more like a wagon, like a stagecoach almost. Um, and then they, he ha he's a court official. He's in charge of all of the finances of the queen. So he's basically the CFO of this kingdom. 
probably not going to be traveling by himself. Probably has a whole entourage of people, guards and servants and other people around him. So there's probably a big procession. And Philip comes across this big procession and the spirit says, go up to this chariot. It would be, it would be almost like seeing a presidential line with secret service and other people. It's not the president that's there, but you've got all of these people in line. And the spirit says, go up to that car. Would you go up to a presidential parade that's going on and go up to see what's going on just because the spirit said to go up? Philip did. Now, we don't know how big of an entourage it was or anything else. This is just my own personal speculation. But at the end of the day, this is a major important person from high up in Ethiopian society that the Spirit is telling Philip to go. He doesn't tell him what to do. He doesn't tell him what to say. He just says, go up to this chariot. And so Philip, being obedient, goes up to this chariot in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert, and then hears the Ethiopian reading aloud from Isaiah, from the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament. Now, Luke doesn't call this next part out, but I want us to see the obedience of Philip in his life in a subtle way that isn't explicitly called out. The Ethiopian is reading from Isaiah. Philip hears him and recognizes the fact that he is reading from the prophet Isaiah. How many of us know our Bible so well that if somebody flipped to an Old Testament passage and was reading it out loud, you would know where I was reading from. So if I read, um, now on the, 20, on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and were, um, and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated. If I kept reading this passage, would you know exactly where it was? Um, you would eventually, because I would drop the name Nehemiah in there, and so you would realize I'm reading, I'm reading from Nehemiah. But the point being, Philip knew his Old Testament. He knew it. He didn't necessarily have it verbatim memorized. Maybe he did. I don't know. doesn't say. But what we do know is that he recognized that this man was reading from Isaiah. So we see Philip's obedience to hold dear the word of God in his life. That was so a part of his life that he could recognize somebody is reading from the Bible. Somebody is reading from an Old Testament passage, and I'm pretty sure it's Isaiah. Do we know that that well? Philip did. We see Philip's obedience even in the little things here, the subtle ways that aren't loud and boisterous. And praise be to God for Philip's love and passion for Christ and for his word because he recognized that. And then on top of that, he's obedient to Christ's command to be his witness to the ends of the earth. We read at the end of Matthew, Christ's command, the way Matthew writes it is, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So it's not just go and live your life and hope somebody sees you living a good life and inquires, but it's 
Go and make disciples. Go and teach. Go and preach. Go and proclaim. And that is what Philip does. He hears this man reading, and so he engages him with intention. He engages him with a purpose. And he asks the question, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the response is, how can I, unless I have somebody to guide me? And now we don't have an exchange. We just see the, the Ethiopian inviting him up to join him in the chariot to talk through these things. There might have been some other exchange where Philip said, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. I'd be happy to, to walk you through um, what it is that you're reading, some, uh, some guide to, to be your guide. We don't know what was said or anything else other than Philip gets invited in, and this is the passage. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generations? For his life is taken away from the earth. And then in verse 35, Philip opens his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, tells the Ethiopian the good news. So beginning here, Philip knew the Bible well enough to take an Old Testament passage and say, this is how this points to Jesus Christ. This is how Christ fulfilled that passage. And he was willing to engage this man to initiate a conversation for the purpose of sharing for the purpose of preaching the gospel to him. We see the obedience in Philip also in the fact that we get to, um, after he does this, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, commentators speculate and believe, and I would tend to agree with them that in this time, it wasn't a second-by-second second gameplay that we are getting that Philip shares everything, how this relates to Christ, and then they see water the, the next moment, and then the Ethiopian says, hey, let me get baptized. It's likely that time passed where Philip is able to teach and to educate and to train and show how all of this points to Christ and calling him to repentance and teaching him the need to be baptized. Because we see that in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations um, and um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's part of the command. Go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And while we don't explicitly have that spelled out, we see that happening here where Philip goes, he's obedient, he teaches the Bible. He teaches how all of this points to Christ, what this man re is reading. And then this man wants to be baptized. So we see the kind of that culmination going on here. We see Philip's obedience to know the truth, to know the Bible, and to be able to explain it. And the Ethiopian receiving that message and wanting it. We can compare this with um, last week's message, um, just the first half of Acts chapter 8, when Philip is in Samaria and Simon the sorcerer believes in Jesus. And then he sees the apostle laying on hands and um, the Holy Spirit coming on and he says, I want that ability. How much is it going to cost me? 
50 bucks, 100 bucks, blank check. Here, I'll write your blank check. You fill it out, whatever you need. Give me that. I want that. And when Peter calls out his sin, his response is not repentance. His response is, yeah, you should pray for me. But here we see the Ethiopian, by contrast, hearing the gospel explained, saying, I want to be baptized. Let me do what is necessary to fully follow Christ. We see that in the Ethiopian. So we've got one instance of a man who says that he believes, but most likely didn't truly. And then here we see a man who hears the gospel explained and believes and wants to follow Christ fully, even to the point of being baptized. And in that time period, and even today in Africa, baptism is a very serious thing. It is not something to be taken lightly. In West Africa, in Senegal, if you came to faith in Christ, being a Muslim country, your family um, will, would regularly say, well, you're just an idiot. You don't understand. You'll come back to, you'll come back to things. They, if you continue to persist in that, they will, um, things will change. Attitudes will change. There will be persecution. But when you are baptized, the Muslims in Senegal recognize oh wait, there's no going back for you now. You have fully committed yourself to this teaching. It wasn't just some foolish fantasy. Now things really change. And that's a lot of the perspective of baptism throughout the world is baptism isn't just something that we do just because. It is a declaration of, I am a follower of Christ. I am a follower of this teaching. I believe it to the point where I'm willing to be baptized so that I identify with this with my life. And that is what the Ethiopian is saying here. I want this. There's some water. They're in the desert and they come across this little pool. Look, here's some water. What's preventing me from being baptized? Let me be baptized now. I want this. I want to be identified with this. And so Philip does. Philip is obedient to the teachings of Scripture because he knows them. He believes them. And he's following the Holy Spirit. We see in Philip's life one who is submitted to Christ in all things. I am willing to leave the harvest that is going on in Samaria and go to the desert for no reason other than God told me to. Then the Spirit says, go up to this chariot. Could be intimidating, could be nerve-wracking, but Philip does it anyway. And then he has studied the Bible, he has studied the words of God in his life so that he understands, oh, this man's reading from the Bible. This man is reading a passage that points to Christ. Let me explain it to you. And doesn't just explain that, but explains everything to the point where the Ethiopian says, I want to be baptized. I want to be identified as a follower of Christ. I came up here to worship Yahweh, the God of the Jews. But now I have learned way more about this Yahweh than I ever dreamed. And I have learned what this Yahweh accomplished through Christ. My sins are forgiven in him, and I want that. So Luke wants us to see the glory of God on display, the Great Commission being fulfilled, and the obedience of Philip to following Christ, 
to following Christ, not just when the Holy Spirit says it, but in all areas of his life. And that should cause us to glorify God because we see an example of what it means to live our lives for the glory of Jesus Christ, to live our lives in such a way that Christ's glory is on display. So what should we learn from this narrative? What should we do with this information? For starters, this should challenge us to know the Bible, should challenge us to read the Bible. We read in Psalms, on your law and meditate day and night is what David wrote, that this is the word of the Lord and we say praise be to God, but do we believe that it is the word of the Lord? That our God, whom we sing praises about, is actively speaking through this? That we hear him, we know him, we understand him by reading this? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, is what Paul writes about the Bible. And that this is good to know. Could you go up to a random person who was reading from Isaiah, and would you understand and know how that points to Christ? We should. All of us should be able to. And we shouldn't have to go to seminary to be able to do that. We spend time reading the Bible, meditating on it day and night, hiding his words in our heart, memorizing scripture. We don't have to memorize the whole book of the Bible. There are many Muslims. There, there's actually a world competition for Muslims to come together um, every year, every so many years to see who can recite the Quran the best and the most beautiful and the most eloquent and the most accurate. There's like there's like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of prize money to win if you can do that the most. Do we value the Bible that way? That is the word of God? Do we value it that way? There was a, a pastor in Russia who lived through the Soviet Union. And um, after the fall of the Soviet Empire, when freedom came back in and they could be Christian openly, freely, he said that there was a shift and change between the young people living in freedom and the young people living under the communist rule. In that, under the communist rule, when they did get together, they knew the Bible. They would be able to recite the Bible. They knew it by heart because they had to, because they didn't know when this would be taken away from them and they wouldn't have it. So they had to hide the word of God in their hearts. So because... There were times when they would be thrown in prison and they wouldn't have access to this. And the only Bible they had is what they, re they remembered. And so they would work hard to memorize it, to know it, to hold dear what is said in these pages. But under freedom, no one bothered to. And so the younger generation that was growing up in the church didn't know the Bible, didn't really know what it said, didn't hide it because they didn't have to. They had the Bible, free copy, free access right here. What, do, what does the Bible say? I don't know. Let me look it up real quick. I'll give me a second. Let me find that page. Wait, let me go to the index because I'm not entirely sure what order the books come in. So they, they don't have to do it. We've got apps now on our phone. I just say, I want this, this, this. Boom, it takes me right there. I can do a keyword search. Where is this concept found? And it will find it for me. So we don't have to know the Bible inside and out. But we see the importance in Philip's life, why it is important 
to know the Bible. Because this is the word of God. And the Holy Spirit used that in Philip's life to save this Ethiopian. Philip didn't not study the Bible. It's not that he went there and he had never studied the Bible and then the Holy Spirit just miraculously brought all of this information into his head. No, the Holy Spirit brought that out of him, but he brought that out of him of what was already put into him. So if we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, if we want to be able to stand firm when the culture around us says, hey, you need to celebrate this or you need to worship that or you need to come and join us over here, we need to know what the word of God says so that we can speak to that, so that we can say, no, that is not right. We need this when other Christians say, well, the Bible says that all of that's okay. The Bible says that, that all of that's fine. No, it doesn't. Can you prove that? Can you prove what the Bible says is true or not true? What the Bible says or doesn't say? When people say, well, the Bible says that we should live this way. Well, the Bible never actually speaks to that specifically. It never addresses that. that doesn't, that's, not, that's not mentioned. So we need to know the Bible because we are constantly bombarded with the world that doesn't want us to be Christians, with people who claim to be Christians but aren't. There are wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jude says, that will come in and deceive the church, that will speak sweet pleasantries, that will tickle the ears, but will lead people astray and into hell. It sounds good, and it sounds right, but it's false. Can we identify those false teachers? Can we identify false teaching that creeps in? Maybe there's a website that I really like, and they start saying things that are not quite right, but close to it, but slightly off. Do I know the word well enough to identify? Hey, yeah, no, that, that wasn't all that great. So we've had a conversation recently about C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity, and um, there's some good things in mere Christianity. There's some good things in mere Christianity. There are some things in there that are also not good. He gets some things wrong. But would you know that? Would you be able to pick up an author who the Christian world as a whole says, this person is amazing, you should read it and you should study it and you should know it. Would you be able to pick that author up and be able to identify what is biblical and what is not? what they get right and what they get slightly wrong or what they get very wrong? Would you be able to do that? Philip is our model and our example of why it is important to know the Bible. So what should we learn from Philip's story? First thing is know our Bibles. Love our Bibles. Love the word. Invest the time and the energy. I get it. It's hard. I spend my days at work writing tip sheets People come to me. I work at Deaconess. I teach and train trainers how to train our electronic medical record. People come to me saying, how do I do this? How do I do that? I'm writing emails, taking screenshots, drawing arrows, do this, do that, troubleshooting things, writing out a one-page tip sheet, a two-page tip sheet, a 12-page workflow on how to do this. I get home, and I am brain dead. I am mentally spent. There are days I have done nothing but sit at a computer, and I still feel like I've been run over by a train. So picking up the Bible, reading the Bible is hard. I get it. But this is life. 
There is nothing else in our lives that gives us life other than this. If we want to be refreshed, we turn to Christ. We turn to God. And how do we do that? By knowing the Bible. Second thing that we learn from this is we need to follow the Spirit. We need to follow the Spirit's leading. We see that God sent an angel to Philip and sent him on his journey. And then the Spirit tells him, go up to this chariot. Do we have an intimate relationship with God? So much so that we are sensitive to the moving of the Spirit in our lives? Do we have a relationship where if we do sense that we are willing to be obedient no matter what the cost is? Some of you have heard me share this example before. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors, Dr. Booker, um, he had taught an evangelism class. It was required by all seminary students to take, so you had to take an uh, evangelism class. I took his. He would train churches on how to do evangelism. He would go and lead conferences, uh, weekend conferences, three or four day long conferences. And one time he was coming back from one of these conferences. He and his wife were driving. It was a long drive. And as married couples do from time to time, they got into an argument and a fight. And it was one of those where it's done, but we're not talking to each other. We're just going to sit here. It was a long, awkward, silent drive. He had pulled into a gas station. So he's in a bad mood. He's in a foul mood. I don't know what the argument was. He didn't say it doesn't matter. He was in a foul mood, it, as we are when we disagree with our wives in a very heated manner. Uh, and he walks in to the gas station. He goes up to the counter to pay. And he said, I, I heard the Holy Spirit say, share the gospel with the woman behind the counter. And my response was, no, I'm not in the mood for this. I have no desire to. I just got in an argument with my wife. I'm not feeling like it. I, no, I no desire. To, I just want to pay, get back in the car, and get home. I'm done. I don't want to do it. So he paid, and as he's walking away from the counter, a big burly truck driver walks up to the counter and says, Do you know Jesus? And Dr. Booker's response, being the evangelism professor that he is, said, that's not how you do it. You don't share the gospel that way. You don't, no, no, you're doing it all wrong. That's not the way to go do it. So he turned around to look, to, to, to see, and just kind of dumbfounded at this event. And he said, the girl behind the counter had tears in her eyes. And she said, no, but I've always wanted to. I've always wanted somebody to believe. The Spirit told Dr. Booker, share the gospel with her. Because God wanted her in his kingdom, in his family. He heard that, but he said, nope, I'm not going to do it because I don't feel like it. And so God, to Dr. Booker's shame, sent someone out, sent someone else to share the gospel in a way that you shouldn't share the gospel. Put this seminary professor, this teacher of evangelism, to shame. Are we sensitive enough? Is our relationship with Christ that in which we are sensitive to the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Are we willing to be obedient no matter what, regardless of whether we feel like it or not, regardless of the challenge that it might 
that it might mean? Go into the desert, Philip. Go up to this chariot, Philip. That's a rich guy up there. That's a, I don't know. Are we willing to be obedient to go and do that? No matter the cost. We see Stephen, a couple chapters before, he stood in front of this council and he preached the gospel to them and said, you killed the Messiah. You killed Christ. And he was killed for that. Are we willing to be obedient and follow the Spirit no matter what? No matter what the cost is? Because we're going to continue to see persecution hitting the church in Acts over and over and over again. It's not done yet. Stephen wasn't the only one. He was the first, but he's not the last martyr. And throughout all of history, even today, people are killed for the gospel because they will not be silent. So I subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs and I get emails from them. And one email came out of Africa. I don't, I don't remember which country, but um, this one family, they came to faith in Christ. The whole family did. Um, and then some um, Islamist militants came into their house, killed the husband right in front of the mother and, um, and daughters, and then said, said, you will convert to Islam. And I don't remember how long they kept them, tortured them, beat them, trying to get them to convert to Islam, and they never did. They never repented. They never recanted. And so by God's grace, they left them alone. They didn't kill them. They took everything, burned their house down, and left them. But they stood strong in the face of persecution. When we share the gospel with people, people will hate us. The gospel is not a comforting message. It is not a welcoming message to the world that doesn't want to hear it. They want you to speak a message that supports their ends and supports what they want. And if you come and you preach something that is against the lifestyle that they're living, that is against what it is that they believe in, they are not going to like it. They are not going to welcome it. But preach it we must. Which leads us to the third thing that we learn from this is that we need to be fearless for the sake of the gospel. Look at Philip's life. He was fearless in going into the unknown. You want me to go into the desert? Okay, I'll go into the desert. You want me to go up to this chariot? Okay, I don't know what's going to come. I don't know what's going to happen. I know that my friend Stephen was murdered for his belief, but I'm going to do it anyway. We need to be fearless. Paul writes in Romans, um, six, Romans 1.16, um, just in his opening argument in Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. To the point where he is willing to, to preach the gospel and declare the gospel no matter what, even if it leads to his death, because he is not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. So Jacob and I were discussing uh, this first part of Romans uh, this past week, and um, he cited somebody, I don't remember the name of the person that he cited as saying, and I'm not even going to get the quote, the quote right, but the idea is this. 
We are all here because somebody preached the gospel to us. You believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning because somebody preached the gospel to us. Somebody was not ashamed of the gospel. Somebody was not ashamed to say, you need Jesus. And we responded because we heard it, because it was declared to us, because it was preached to us. And we responded. So why are we ashamed of preaching the gospel? Why are we ashamed of telling other people about the gospel? We need to be fearless because that's how the kingdom spreads. The God uses us and our weaknesses and our foolish ways of sharing the gospel. Do you know Jesus? He uses that to draw people to himself. And there are times I have gone through a gospel presentation and I think back on my I think back on those times and I pray, dear God, please use that flawed way that I shared that for your glory because that was awful. If I could go back and do it again, I wouldn't say the same thing. I would say something completely different. But God can use that and he does use that. He uses imperfect people to declare his truth to imperfect people that are in need of hearing it. So let us not be ashamed of sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel and declaring the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says, how will they call on the one in whom they have not heard? How will they preach unless they are sent. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. People respond to the gospel because they hear the gospel. They don't respond to the gospel because they see us live our lives in a way that reflects the glory of God, but I'm, I'm never going to say anything about the gospel. I'm just going to live a life and just let them see my life. Um, that's, that's not how the gospel works. The gospel works by declaration. The, the word that we get evangelized is literally proclaim good news. That is what that word means, evangelize. So when we say I'm going to share the gospel, it's actually not an accurate statement because we are not sharing the gospel. Uh, Lindsay is reading a book right now um, that is Evangelism as Exiles. And um, the author of this book highlights this fact and uh, talks about the idea of sharing the gospel. When we share something, it's like, hey, I've got some food. Have some food. You, you don't want the food? Okay, that's fine. You don't have to have it. Hey, I have an idea that I'd like to share with you. Oh, you don't want to hear it? That's okay. That's not what evangelism is. Evangelism is a proclamation. It is a declaration. It is us proclaiming that which is good. It is good news. It is the herald walking down the street, ringing the bell, saying, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. The king is speaking. The king has a message. That is what we are doing. So the analogy that this author gave, which I thought was, was really helpful and really good. In baseball, a coach, if a coach trained his pitchers and said, I want you to go up to the plate, and then I want you to toss the ball across. So go up to the pitcher's mound and toss the ball across the plate. And that coach only ever trained his pitchers to toss the ball. So he used that word, toss the ball, toss the ball, toss the ball. 
that is a very different effect. And that is going to affect people in a different way than, all right, I want you to get up there and I want you to throw a curveball. But I want you to get it as close to hitting the, the batter as you can. Now, I want you to, um, to throw a slider. So I want it to get up there, sink. Now's the time to get a fastball in. Nope, slow it down. So when we are very direct with our words, it has a very different meaning in baseball than just simply toss the ball across the plate. Because I can get up there and I can just kind of toss it like I'm playing horseshoes or like I'm playing cornhole out there. I toss the bag up into the air and hope it lands on the other board. Um, I don't pitch the ball at the other board. I don't throw the ball at the other board. I toss the bag at the other board. At the other board. Sharing the gospel is that kind of thing. And I have said it many times as I've been preaching this morning, sharing the gospel. It is ingrained into our culture. It's ingrained into our verbiage. But the reality is that we evangelize. We proclaim the good news. We declare the good news. And that's what Philip was doing. And that is how we need to live our life. Unashamed of the gospel. Fearless for the gospel. And we go and we boldly proclaim because that is how people are saved. By hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel. So, this passage Give God the glory when you read this passage because God is at work. We rejoice that God is at work through people like Philip. We rejoice at that, but then we are challenged. How can we live our lives like Philip did as an example? Know our Bibles. Have a deep, intimate relationship with the Father so that when the Spirit moves, we can declare the truths of the Son. So we can partake in the work that the Trinity is doing here on earth. And we do it with boldness, with fearless abandon. Let's pray.